0: I'm Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. Our guest is Eve Fairbanks. She writes about change in cities, in countries, in landscapes, morals, and in values. A former political writer for The New Republic, her essays and reportage have been published in The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Guardian, among other outlets. Her new book is titled The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning. I'm joined by 13 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Hi, Eve, I'm Dave McGregor, um, Harvard 63. I live in New York City, and when I can, I live in Vermont. Um, I spent my time as a um, member of an architectural group that did um, urban design work and
2: a neighborhood in cities.
1: Yes, hi, I'm, I'm Pete DeLisavoy, and I live up in the a- Tip of Northern New Hampshire. I'm an editor and writer, and uh, after Harvard, I lived for a year in South Africa and and Rhodesia. And after that, for several years in the the, the deep south of this country, and uh, going from uh, those regions the countries, one to the other. Those days, they were all police states, uh, although not recognized that as such by the whites, of course, but complete police states uh, with their own idiosyncrasies and special histories, but it was a seamless experience going back and forth. And over the years, I've kept track of southern Africa and the deep south in this country and often speculated as to which, 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 er, which one is ahead? One would seem to go ahead a little bit, and then the other and then step back. And as for the present time, I, I really don't know what to think uh, about either one of them. So, very much looking forward to hearing uh, about your book.
3: I'm Mason Morfit. I'm in Maine. I'm wearing my topic-appropriate T-shirt. And, uh, <laughs> meanwhile, I'm. Uh, packing baggies full of emergency toilet paper for a trip to Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia starting on Saturday. Wow, Wow. Wow. that sounds interesting, great. Wow. Jeff. Oh, hi. Uh, Jeff Fox, also from the same class of 63 Harvard, Um, now living in Spain and writing fiction, but I I was trained as a sociologist and for years was doing the kind of work that I think uh, Eve is doing. trying to f- follow social change by looking at people's personal histories. So I think I'll, I'll be very interested in her work to, for the, uh, the methodology as well as the conclusion. Good morning, I'm in Pasadena, California where it's gonna cool down to 101 today.
4: So <laughs> yeah. forward to that. Um, uh, after I'm one of the 18 out of the class of 63, then law school, then the Peace Corps, uh, Department of Justice, uh, oil company, then Audubon, California, the bird and wildeye folk, then a s- state water board, uh, and then worked for a non trade association for a number of years, basically an environmental lawyer.
3: Okay, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, grew up in, uh, born in Mass General, grew up in northwestern Connecticut, uh, now live just south of San Francisco in San Mateo. I-
5: oh, hi, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> i retired from university journalism. I grew up in Benton Harbor across the state. George Jones. So, George Jones, I'm
6: also in Ann Arbor, Michigan, member of the class of 63. I'm actually wearing my 63 t-shirt. <laughs> but that's, not, that's just coincidence. It's not really relevant to this
4: particular conversation. My only tangible connection to South Africa is that I've been there.
2: Oh, okay, great, great. <laughs> David Allen no connection to South Africa, certainly looking forward to today. Um, also class of 63 in Concord, Mass. Okay, Hampton, Ham.
1: Yeah, uh, 63, grew up in New York and Boston, living in uh, Nashville for many years, clinical psychologist. Uh, I had the uh, fantasy that, that uh, mm-hmm. at my age, I could affect the world by spending a lot of time on Twitter What I ended up doing is uh, rebuking some of the excesses of uh, some of the people on uh, my side, which can get tiresome.
0: Okay. Uh, Jay. Jay Pasikoff. Hello. Jay Pasikoff,
4: also class of 63. I'm an astronomer, have been since a freshman seminar, freshman year. Uh, I have been uh, four times in South Africa with various astronomical... Uh, pursuits and uh, for one of them we charted a a jet flying south out of cape town to get an eclipse of the sun about 600 miles i think uh, south of uh of cape town it's one of 76 solar eclipses that i've uh, that i've seen doug Uh,
2: hi everyone Uh, i'm doug shapiro i've had a very uh multifaceted (laughs) career including uh, a long period of about 20 years when I worked on the behavioral ecology of coral reef fish. I've been to South Africa, I think twice. Uh, The most interesting of those trips was uh, sometime shortly after the end of our apartheid, uh, where it it was a big scientific convention. And I was very surprised to find that the South African scientists who had not been able to travel to international science meetings for quite some time, were really at least a decade or more behind in terms of their uh, the way they conceptualized uh, evolutionary ideas and how to approach uh, uh, behavioral ecology. So that was quite uh, interesting and really eye-opening for me.
7: I'm Marcy Benstack, living and working in New York City. Um, heading an organization that's dealing with office space nightmares um, in, and uh, have worked for many decades on major resource allocation battles, both natural resources and limited public funds, and am um, organizing an archive reflecting both the substantive policy issues that were covered and the nature of the work.
0: Okay, Peter Grilly. Um, <clears throat> my name is Peter Grilly. I live in the town of Harvard, not the university, but the town, uh, just outside of Boston. class of 63 originally, but graduated in '65. Uh, my main uh, beat, my life experience has been mostly with Japan, Japan and Asia um, Except for a couple of South African friends, I have absolutely no experience with South, South Africa. And because of that, I'm really looking forward to your comments today. Okay, Spencer.
6: I am Spencer. I am a uh, class of 61. My uh, only connection with uh, South Africa is that I almost got there. <laughs> I was assigned to speak at the 202 uh, uh, co-conference uh, for sustainable development uh, for my, uh, my uh, programs in uh, sustainable development education, but um, I couldn't make it. And I'm very sorry for that. But, um, and uh, I think my only other one was uh, connected with uh, the music of South Africa, which I uh, very much, in, uh, you know, uh, like. Uh, I was in Africa. I've spent. have had a lot of contact with the other parts of Africa. I was in uh, Tanganyika, uh, leading up to uh, to uh, Uhuru, with the first uh, project Tanganyika was called, and it was a Harvard project, and it went on for about twenty years, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, contact with West Africa. Okay. I'm looking forward to finally. Uh, learning a lot more about South Africa from your talk. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. David Offmer, I uh, grew up in South America and spent most of my
4: life
3: working for public television and live in Philadelphia.
0: Okay. George Allen. Hi. Uh,
3: I'm on the other side of
1: Los Angeles uh, from Jerry, uh, over uh, near the museum district. Where it's also going to be really hot today, but not as hot as Pasadena. I'm a semi retired lawyer. I keep trying to
0: retire, and my clients keep refusing to allow me to do that. Okay, Eve, thank you for coming on and welcome.
7: Thank you. Thanks so much,
0: Kent. So <clears throat> tell us about yourself and tell us about the book.
7: Yeah. Um, sorry to say that I went to Yale. Um, <laughs> This group, yeah, but I—I uh, I was the first class in in thirty or forty years never to see a win at the Harvard Yale football game for <laughs> Yale. So we we had to finally acknowledge the superior, the true hierarchy there. Um, uh, thank you, thanks for having me, and I'm I'm really glad to hear that some of you have a lot of interest in South Africa. Others have interest more from a remove. Um, I was class of 2005 at Yale um, and then worked for three years as a journalist at the New Republic in DC. So I was covering, I was a congressional correspondent and I was covering sort of um, from the Capitol building, um, the Iowa primary in 2008, Obama's campaign on the ground in Iowa, very kind of I'm not gonna say like top level as in I was getting amazing access. I remember being very proud that I had John McCain's cell phone number, but he never answered it for me. Um, <laughs> and uh, but, but that was the, it felt like the goal of the journalism that we were doing and the writing that we were doing was to get maximum insider access to scoops, to top level political actors, even if that meant kind of subtly promising them good coverage um, in exchange for having continued access to them. I remember the kind of last straw for me personally was when the New Republic, some of you, I'm sure some of you read it at one point, it's hundred years old, kind of an old lefty complicated magazine like the Nation or the American Prospect. And... Our giant goal in 2008 became to figure out before Politico, the publication of Politico or the New York Times, who Obama was going to choose as his running mate, which eventually turned out to be John Edwards. And I just remember thinking the amount of resources that we were throwing at that, um, when it wasn't like Watergate where something that is being investigated no one will know about it potentially if it's not broken. Like Obama was going to announce this. The question was, did we get 30 minutes ahead of other publications or not? And that was kind of the the feel of political reporting. I'd always been really interested in politics um, and uh, but it, it was a strange environment where there was a huge amount of attention on the sort of principles supposedly in the political drama of the U S and these sort of top level meetings and so on. And so I decided to leave when I was about 25 and I got a writing grant that took me to South Africa. I had read, I had read what I thought was a lot about the country. Um, I'd read Mandela's autobiography. I had read, various other histories, a beautiful book uh, by an Afrikaans writer called My Trader's Heart, which I totally recommend. Um, but I still found it. It was a two-year writing grant. And I initially landed in Cape Town. And um, it was very shocking. There's somebody who said they're very interested in South African music. Um, I will send Kent. So a little a couple of tracks. South African music is so interesting because it's only recently beginning to really incorporate Western African influences and feel kind of more pan-African in the way that Kenyan music does. Uh, I lived also in Nairobi. It has so many American influences from New Orleans jazz and um it's a country that considers itself still part of Africa but also somehow something else because it had this very different history. Um, two things I learned pretty soon after I got there, which at one point were true and may still be, but <clears throat> is that of all countries that Americans go and visit as tourists, this is a study done by some tourism board and it wasn't like paid for by the South African government, but I don't know how great their methodology was, but they were a kind of international group that studied tourism. And they determined that of the countries that Americans went to as first time tourists, adults, South Africa was the one that they returned to the most. And this included, I think, I think it included France and I don't know, that was a sort of one-time study. And I think when I asked people I knew who had visited South Africa about that, they said that when they were there in the aftermath of the white minority regime, so from 1994 (laughs) onward, it felt... um, both so familiar and unfamiliar. It felt almost like looking, like it's it's, it's its own place. It's so fascinating in its own right. And with an incredible um, history that goes back millennia and a landscape that's unbelievable and quite, quite unusual and different. And yet the social atmosphere has these almost like unnerving parallels to the American one. And you feel like you're, you're in sort of trick mirror America at times where the, somebody once said to me, it's like the variables are different, but the equation is the same Hello? in terms of the racial history. So yeah. the, the variables, yeah. And the other thing was that somebody mentioned they did work with the Peace Corps. Um at the point that I was there of all the countries that America sent peace corps volunteers to um South Africa was the one and now in the peace corps they let you choose your country more but then it was a thing where you were kind of dispatched wherever they chose for you and they had a situation in South Africa that where South Africa had the highest attrition rate of peace corps volunteers and they couldn't really totally understand it because compared to some people who went to rural Georgia, Republic of Georgia or Kazakhstan, um, they, you know, South Africa is quite developed in some ways, but they felt that, or the Peace Corps volunteers that I talked to when I went there said that, you know, it's just, it's all, it's almost oppressively familiar while not wanting to say oh this reminds us so much of home because it's a very different country but i am for better or worse i don't really feel like an american i'm put there into a category of black or white and interpreted and i move around that way in that country as if i'm sort of suddenly incorporated into this country's drama um so i ended up spending i've lived there for 12 years, I know two South African languages. Um, and I ended up writing a book that tried to think about um, through <clears throat> the lives of three very different people, <clears throat> primarily. Tried to think about what happens when you get a demographic change, um, in a, you get a a change of who's dominating the public space, who's in power at universities, who's in management, who's running the newspapers, what's the majority of the, of the Congress, Um, that happens so rapidly compared to what we experience here, where just, you know, in the space of one election, you've got a change from a parliament that the main one that had no people of color in it, no uh, black people, no colored people, which is the the word for mixed race that that South Africans use, this old apartheid category that remains. And uh, no people of Indian background and it's just an all white chamber. And then like effectively literally overnight, you get a diverse governing body that is dominated by by people of color, by Black South Africans. And one last thing that I remember finding out was that the number of foreign correspondents who were in South Africa after 1990, around 1994, that three quarters of them who were there in the early 1990s heading up to this transition to democracy and the election of Mandela left in 95, 96. So you have this almost like wrapping up of this South African story um, that it has this unexpected, in a way, unexpected ending, this kind of um, quite miraculous end to a a police state that looked like it would never, ever, ever, that it would rather just drive itself into oblivion before it gave up minority power. And... And suddenly you had this sort of montage at the end. I I don't know, you know, there are movies about South Africa that often end with a kind of, yes, things, you know, there's still a ton of poverty and there's this inequality and you see these landscapes of incredible wealth up against uh, incredible poverty, but there's something kind of glimmering and hopeful and like, you know, this is always going to stay in our mind as, as this kind of a miracle. Uh, that happened. And basically, I just spent time for about eight or nine years with people that I had met through various interactions, uh, often, you know, not necessarily people that I was intending to interview. And I was like, at the base, I was just really curious, you know, what is it like to live in Utopia, at least that that's how it's presented in history books, in the movie Invictus, that others see it that way. They have that kind of almost fantasy of it. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people said to me, we in South Africa, just through our own lives and how we act, we felt a lot of pressure to prove to foreigners, to, to observers, to the rest of the world that types of things that they longed for, that they longed to know were possible, types of reconciliation, was, was that it was happening, that it was going okay, that it was real, you know, we, were, we became a kind of um, diorama or something that, that everyone, everyone looked at in that way. So in some way, we know that we're living in, um, you know, the dream has come. It, it, it has arrived, that's what this story is supposed to be, um, and yet we cannot get around two things. One, the fact that we're also living in ruins um, of a, a moral ideas about what it means to be a good person, about who's competent in that country, about who really deserves to run a university, who really deserves to teach what, and even just the way the country was built. Um, A lot of things in South Africa are more explicit than they are here. So apartheid in South Africa was built on Jim, uh, it was explicitly modeled after Jim Crow. The South African government sent emissaries in the 1950s to Alabama. And they traveled around and they looked at the historically black, the segregated colleges, and they looked at the, the different entrances to medical facilities. And they said, okay, great. This is what we're going to do. Um, For various local reasons, which if, you know, I could talk about later, if people are interested, but they took it, They legalized things, they made things explicit in ways that kind of went unsaid here. So there's still a physical architecture in that country. You can drive through Cape Town and not be aware still that Black people live there, visually, because neighborhoods under the white minority regime, Black neighborhoods, colored neighborhoods were placed into depressions in the land physically and onto kind of worse land or behind factories or behind mountains and and this you know you don't you don't just get that kind of amalgamation I think of the movie Invictus I remember watching that a few times I don't know if anyone's seen it it's a great Mm -hmm. movie yeah but it gives a little bit of like a false or fantastical impression of what might really happen in a scenario like South Africa's because you have a flat playing field, which I think is very kind of symbolically important. You have these white Afrikaans rugby players, and then you have black figures starting with Mandela coming onto this flat playing field, greeting them at the same height. You know, it's a little like a clean slate, game theory kind of potentiality. But the fact is that just the way you wake up in the morning, the way you move across that country is still now so dictated by by race. And yet that's intention in people's lives with their own sense that they almost, should be having a different experience of their country than the one that they're able to have. Um, one of the guys, and then I'll and then I'll I'll let you guys ask questions. I'm not, you know, I'm sort of um, between, you know, how much I should talk about the basics of, of the country's history or how much how much everyone knows it. My father was um, he was class of '63 uh, at Yale. He was supposed to be ended up at Cornell. Um, but he grew up in Atlanta. He grew up in Macon, Georgia. And he told me that even now, he when he visited me in South Africa, he felt like he was going like back into a wormhole, back into his 1950s childhood and segregated Macon, Atlanta. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time with a, a guy who wanted to be a farmer. I know that Kent has done... I, that has done some farming. <laughs> it is not easy um, to say the least, <clears throat> but he was born in 1978. So he would have been a late a teenager, right when this transition happened. And he grew up in a so-called homeland, which was a, like a reserve, a sort of segregated reserve under apartheid for black South Africans. His father was a miner. He told me that, you know, he did not realize when he was a child that he was poor. It was only when he started travel and when he started to really read the history of his own society that he realized that he was disadvantaged, which is a word that's used legally there. That's very, very widely used because his father had been a, a sub chief in a kind of a remote area. And in that kind of micro community that he'd grown up in, The man's name is Elliot. Um, He, what he experienced was a sense of community where he was near the top. His family was very beloved. Um, People used to come all the time. They tried to build their houses near his house, his father's house. He felt very kind of like a prince. That's what he told me. But then he felt, you know, I ought to take advantage. He developed an awareness, oddly, right toward the end of apartheid in the early 1990s that that the area that he lived in was not, was what in South Africa is called disadvantaged. It was, he often called it dark and they lacked electricity and it wasn't as bright as the formerly white Johannesburg, formerly white Cape Town, and that it started, there was this very rapid shift of what your ambition was supposed to be as a young black man. And the ambition in the late nineties was to go to Johannesburg and to get an office job. He, um, so he went, he graduated high school. He did extraordinarily well. And then he went and he tried to get a job in Johannesburg. And I think, you know, if you read the book, there are things that you'll find, one of the huge experiences that South Africans had that was almost anxiety producing to kind of share was realizing only in retrospect how much they hadn't foreseen um, about what would happen after the end of apartheid. It was such a struggle to try to resist it, such a struggle to sort of try to overthrow it. It was just such a, a tough, um, such, such an absorbing, such a huge, huge thing. And so he said, you know, I just didn't realize really we thought that we were going to inherit the white country that we saw in the distance on tv when we had to go and work there we in a way didn't realize that we would be inheriting the whole country which was primarily where we already were and what we already had and places that were very messed up and you know the end of apartheid had this promise that you can go to joburg you can go to johannesburg and get a get an office job now you're able but it didn't create new many new opportunities there so he wasn't able to get a job um, there. He ended up deciding that he really wanted to become a farmer in part because it's a very, uh, it's diff- a little different from years, very en- ennobled profession in South Africa, very associated with uh, Afrikaner sort of heroism and turning the land into a garden of Eden. And he wanted to prove that he could do it. And he wanted this, this big herd. And he ended up failing. Uh, I'm making the book sound really grim. It isn't, but uh, in, in its entirety, but he didn't fail because he didn't have the capabilities or even the education or even the resources. The reason that he failed to become a farmer was that this image of white farming under apartheid in South Africa was. Uh, created by the sanctions under apartheid itself. It was a a creation, it only existed. Certain types of mid-sized farmers who looked like they could do great, only existed because white supremacy existed and everything that went along with it. And, And those types of farms, once sanctions dropped, Uh, the numbers of farmers in South Africa dropped by about three quarters. And that was mainly white attrition. So in a way, what he had aspired for, the kind of life that he imagined that would be open to him in in this new society, finally, he would be able to be equal. He would be able to go for this type of life. It also vanished when... Uh, segregation ended, and and he said, you know, I really should have, I really should have understood that, um, you know, that that the end of this regime would <clears throat> change the country so much and that we would all, in a way, be like immigrants in our own country, all of us, we'll all have to become something different, but I didn't, that, that's what he said, so I'll stop there. Um, I think somebody asked, you know, is it ahead of us? Is South Africa ahead of us? Is it behind us? Um, I think it's ahead in a way. I mean, it has a demographic situation that no other, you know, that is very, very unlike ours. So its path will be very different. It's a much poorer country. It has a whole different history. But in terms of really, Coming to terms with not only what equality of opportunity might feel like, but what will really happen when a kind of group of people that considered itself dominant in a society and deservingly so, and considered and felt that it had made the country, that it had created it, that it had got, formed it in a godlike way. What, Kind of loses power, I think that that they're way ahead in in terms of it's almost you know we're still as i said there's the sense that maybe the right in the u s that the potential for a resurgence of white supremacy is so powerful here um and there it's not they've they've moved into these questions of what are we going to do with this kind of like place where we don't even know what it is. We don't know who we are as a people. We're in a kind of a wreckage that's confusing. And they're really grappling with those questions.
0: Jerry, Eve, a
4: couple of things. In the U.S., I'm considered black. In South Africa, I'd be colored. Since my dad was white, my mom black. Uh, I also hate to disabuse you, but there are many neighborhoods in L.A. where you can drive through and you'll never see a black person. So they're like visible and they surround where I am in Pasadena.
2: Hmm.
4: But my question is, I worked for an oil company for a number of years. And in the late 1970s, we were debating whether or not to explore for oil in South Africa. And the debate was, should we go in and provide good jobs, good education for literally several thousand people, or should we stay out of the country and continue to just boycott it? And that debate went back and forth. Before I give you our answer, I'm just curious, what do you think would have been the right answer back in the 1970s?
7: Boycott it.
4: Well, that's what we ended up doing.
7: Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I say that because I think that boycotts made a big difference in South Africa. They did. I think that's pretty acknowledged. You know, now I I I see them being rediscussed in terms of Ukraine and sanctions and and uh You can't. South Africa was such a unique case because, unlike with Russia, in most ways, the white government in South Africa wanted to feel Western. They wanted to be understood as Western. They wanted to be interpreted that way. They wanted to be interpreted as a Western nation. They longed to be considered European. They didn't have that defiance in the same way. So it was very humiliating and anxiety producing to them that they couldn't even be part of the olympics or that they they couldn't be part of this kind of western country community um yeah i think that i think that was the right thing interesting
4: thank you
5: Mm -hmm. john well you know the boycott movement was uh developed over many decades i was involved with the divestment here at university of michigan where we got them to divest, and it didn't. It wasn't a matter of the corporations. I also worked at Ford Motor Company, uh, for before, right before coming to University of Michigan, where they were being pressured. Uh, you know, they were using the Sullivan principles, which was a fig leaf to have uh, U.S. corporations and uh, financial interests continue their relationship with South Africa, because of course they had propped up South Africa, and had, and the CIA had identified a Mandela as a uh, terrorist and undesirable and they contributed they helped out in his arrest so so let's let's look at what the united states was doing but then things were tilting in the world and they were very afraid of what it would look like if they continued to support south africa and they started they were forced by the pressure of an international movement and also by the fact that when the south africans attempted to go against the Angolans and uh, Mozambicans, especially the Angolans who were supported by Cuban troops, and they sent the South African troops out there, supported by the United States, but they were soundly defeated by um, the Angolans and the Cubans. And so there was the handwriting on the wall for them to figure they made concessions. But when they conceded in South Africa, they didn't change, they brought in the Mandela and the ANC, but they didn't change ownership of mines and other manufacturing and finance and trade. All of that remained, the wealth, the, the, the dominant wealth remained with the uh, former apartheid uh, elite. And that's the problem the country has now. They, it still hasn't changed. So you have poverty, you've got uh, rampant, you know, crime and and uh, friction between groups, because the people of South Africa don't control their own resources, really. They get very little benefit of it. That's my opinion on the matter.
7: Yeah, you know i um <clears throat> I lived in 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 Kenya for two years, so not nearly as long as I lived in South Africa, but in in south africa i was I was struck by how many people of different generations would tell me. That they retained a kind of um anxiety <clears throat> about the way that these changing winds, as you put it, drove change in the country. That there were people high up in the ANC, the, the Liberation Party that still rules, although it probably won't in another four years. It's really fascinating. Um, but and and younger people that say, you know. In my heart of hearts, I'm not really sure whether we won our liberty or whether the fact that, that the Iron Curtain fell and then the Soviet Union was no longer able to provide resources, but also the US was helping the white regime a ton in the eighties as part of the global kind of war against communism. And once that went away as a rationale, there was no more reason to ally in a real politique way with South Africa other than just you like what the white regime is doing. And the, the white regime was really in a corner. They, they, in terms of global politics, didn't necessarily have a choice. They were going bankrupt. They, they gave over a country to Mandela that was effectively ruined. It was behind the scenes, much more bankrupt than it looked. But people will say to me like, um, I just, I, it sounds odd out of context, maybe, but I just feel unsure that we really deserve this country still, <laughs> um, and that's because of the incredible long lineage of of ideas around, you know, who deserves to run this country, who's got the right mindset, who's good enough, who's competent enough, but but this was a difficult. A thing. And I think in terms of resources, yeah, it's, you know, the country has become more economically unequal since the end of apartheid. The whole structure of the economy remains quite similar. I sometimes wonder, like, what was the solution there? What is it? Um, I'm just going to read you one, like half of a page. Um from this book, uh, and I think it's just gonna speak very much to what you just said. Okay, this is from the book itself. It's called The Inheritors. Vishnu Pariyachi, an economist, worked with the ANC on its economic plans during the transition. In a conversation, he remembered feeling tremendously trapped by our insecurities. He and his colleagues had been told for so long they were unfit to run a modern nation. They felt unsure. After his release, Mandela went to Davos and dispatched his top brass to do training sessions at the mega investment bank Goldman Sachs. Some people interpreted this as a simple wish to cozy up to power. But Pariachi felt these kinds of moods arose directly from our terror. (laughs) His colleagues often talked about South Africa's democratic transition in language that implied it was a gift they hadn't earned and perhaps didn't really deserve. One ANC leader marveled that in the early 90s, de Klerk gave black people much more than we expected. If de Klerk had given us more, we wouldn't have known what to do with it. Another leader begged well-off white South Africans not to flee. We say to whites, he said, don't run away. You know when we will become a banana republic? When you people go. By the 1990s, no other Sub-Saharan African nation was considered a straightforward success story. Many appeared to come out of colonialism strong only to see their economies decline. Others fought civil wars. Um, South Africa's position as the last liberated pressured it to prove at least one of Sub-Saharan Africa's then nearly 50 nations would be an unqualified success. Some on Padiachi's economic team wanted more redistributive economic policies. They said the fact that white corporate elites opposed this kind of change was an argument in its favor. When it black people had reason to trust anything white South Africans advised them? But others pointed out black people were taking responsibility for a system designed by white people and it would only give white people satisfaction to see them break it. Therefore, the black led government should do everything white economists and businessmen said. To Padiachi, it felt crazy making this inability then to f- shake free of what white leaders thought of their actions. Mm. So they were under also a ton of kind of almost moral pressure to not like mess this situation up. And I think you can look back now and say, not enough was done mm. to really change this society for the majority, for the poor. But this is the type of things that people recalled to me that I thought were really interesting.
3: Mm. Wow. Pete, uh, Jeff. Yeah, hi. Uh, Well, the uh, the description of the book that we saw said you followed the lives of three people, a mother, black mother and her daughter and and a white man who got into the army. I'd like to hear about about those individuals, because I think following individual stories is often a gateway into understanding larger conflicts. Yeah,
7: I met the white man first. He was born so the the black mother that I spent a ton of time with and that you follow in the book and the the white veteran effectively were both born in 1970 so they were coming of age they were starting their adult lives right when this transition was happening and the the Afrikaans guy is Afrikaner and he was one of the last boys white boys drafted into the apartheid army uh, they had conscription. And he ended up policing the townships. It, it There was a weird tension in the end of South Africa where, um, I thought was, was fascinating, where the government, it's at the very highest levels, were negotiating itself out of power. But almost in response to that and in tension with it, at the mid and lower levels of the military, they were becoming more militant about kind of hanging on to, to uh white supremacy, not letting kind of black people get out of control in this language that they used. It was going backwards almost. So he was in this very last era of the of the white military where he was sent to surveil Nelson Mandela as call and, and to kind of consider Nelson Mandela a terrorist. And then two years later, this man's terrorist was a president of the country that he'd grown up in. So <laughs> yeah the whole thing, and then it's years of him trying to most like reunderstand his who who he really was in light of a changing view of the past, what else he could have done, what other choices he might have made, what choices he didn't have the chance to make differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: He also killed someone was right at the end of his service in the military, which at the height of apartheid would have been considered a kind of uh, a f- civilian death as part of a military operation, and they had suddenly changed the laws, and he was put on trial for murder for that. And then he was one of the ones that the TRC kind of forgave. But
3: can you tell us more about that?
7: Yeah.
3: More about uh, who killed? And...
7: Yeah, he was. Um, he was. He was in this surveillance unit in Soweto and he went up to the top of a. Mind dump and he was supposed to be looking for caches of weapons people hiding weapons and in the telling of the people who were there a couple of people jumped out at him and he shot one you oh. remember being told in the military when he was training he asked you know we're in this we're policing these black neighborhoods and you're saying that anyone could be a militant but like these people are grannies and they're their kids, and I, I don't know who I'm going after. Who is the enemy here? And and he remembered, many people remember the commander's line was just shoot the ones who need to be shot. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> Great advice, yeah. and uh, And then, you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting about his story is that he grapples over the years with how bitter he feels about having been forgiven by the society. And that sounds... Very not nice as a thing to, to struggle with, but he almost wished that he'd been taken a task more. He found himself wishing that white people had a harder time in post-apartheid South Africa, because in a way, the kindness with which he was treated by Black people made him feel more guilty about how he had behaved when he was in power. Because he had always said to himself, if they get into power, they're gonna treat us just like we treated them. It's a human nature, it's power, and so not being uh victimized came to mm-hmm. feel like a burden to him. The mother would have, they don't remember it, but probably would have interacted with this white guy's team, she was an activist. She was a a black woman who was born into Soweto in the same neighborhood this man was patrolling. And and she was, she dropped out of school like many people in Soweto did at 14, 15, in order to protest, to organize, protest on the streets um, against apartheid. She was arrested many times. And she struggled later in her life where the big kind of question for her was was everything that I did in that struggle morally justified. And there was a struggle between her and her daughter. Her daughter was born, doesn't have any memories of apartheid. She's born in 1982, grew up, went to a multiracial elementary school, you know, with this new national anthem and integrated. And uh, <laughs> she experiences a ton of pressure from her mother, almost to like, her life has to turn out a certain way in order to make her mother's loss of her childhood as a protester worth it. And you travel with them through Soweto and through their lives and their kind of Uh intertwining stories. um.
3: Has the white guy ever had any contact with this uh, former activist from Soweto? Did, did, Did they ever meet? Do they...
7: Or do they know of one another? They know of one another and they reflect on each other. I tried, I weighed whether or not to get them to meet. So I I weighed a lot of how I'm going to, who I'm going to, whose story I'm going to tell, because sometimes I feel like you get these books where history is told for one person mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like pressure on that to be a kind of iconic story. And I ended up just, talking about these very kind of paradoxical experiences of the people that i found the most interesting that i kept thinking about Mm -hmm. that i returned to talking to and so they did not know each other i then thought oh do i want to like orchestrate a meeting between them where they can see each other hash out you know these periods where they worked in the exact same area whether they remember each other and i ended up feeling that was our official um There's a lot of artificiality in both ways to the sort of contemporary South African story where almost I feel sometimes like movie makers, they try to kind of make a certain ending occur that will be representative of what should be happening. So I just uh, I told their stories to each other and they reflect on them. I think I mean, I was really surprised by what they thought of what they heard of each other.
1: You know, I'm, I was the one who talked about whether which country is ahead. You know, and it's 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 hard to know because they, in spite of their similarities, there's a, there's a lot of subtle differences, and, and your comments are bringing out that. And it's it is South Africa is such an interesting country. My my feeling right at the moment from listening to you talk is that in spite of or because of our current situation in the U.S. It seems to me, and because of, of South Africa's recent history, it seems to me that, and the regression that we're going on here in this country, that the cultural, the cultural dynamic you know, in the U.S. is much worse at the moment. But uh, on the economic side, I, I've always heard that South Africa is even more uh, uh, economically wealth-wise uh, stratified than the United States and that the wealth gaps uh and, and dichotomies are even worse than than in the US. And that's made me think that South Africa is under a lot of very peculiar stresses. I, I want, wondered wonder if uh your comments on uh there's there two incidents or two, two events there in South Africa recently that strike me as kind of windows on the stresses, stressors in South Africa that I wondered your comments on. One, one is the uh the riots, terrible riots and destructions of all the grocery stores in parts of the country in Durban and so on uh, during the when Zuma was put on trial and, and uh, at that period a little while ago, which which uh Suggested a certain kind of uh just the stress that the country is under that such a thing, you know, peculiar stress that country is under. And the other is uh at the moment, my my contact with South Africa at the moment is through some young Zimbabwean friends of mine who live in in Cape Town. And uh they at the moment are facing uh the, the the And this economic situation is so dire, and the unemployment is so great that the they're facing a, a situation of xenophobia such that they have even though they've lived in South Africa for a long time, they're figuring out whether they can possibly stay or or they're going to go back to Zimbabwe, which is a economic basket case. but uh, they're unable because of the uh, government. Shutting down services and so on for Zimbabweans in, in december to uh, to live there longer, but that seems another window to me on, on how bad things are, not culturally but economically, maybe, so I just wondered about those
7: yeah, um, you know South Africa is it it's so much more economically unequal than Brazil even, or any other, like it is this outlier point. And, and I studied, studied political science at the time. It was quite kind of statisticsy and predictive. And any political scientists that I would have known in my education would have predicted that that country would be in flames. It would just have to be, there would just be a level of of tension and anger and lack of representation. And yet it is, it's not. Um, And even, I I, I feel the country is much more peaceful than it has any right to be. Now, and that includes these riots, which were really bad. I was away, my partner is South African. He runs a business. He has Zimbabwean employees. He, you know, it was a kind of hectic thing. There was a street where a lot of car dealerships that is like two or three blocks away from us that was pretty torched. I could call him and I could hear, hear that. And yet it it wasn't anything like the unrest that you could see there, hypothetically, or even you should mathematically. But that is two sides to it. I feel all the time living there that I'm. I'm unsettled by the piece because on the one hand, it's, it's instructive. It's amazing. It, it is a result of people knowing just how close they came to civil war in the nineties. And they don't treat that as like a kind of bit of a fantasy. Like you sometimes can hear here, like, Oh, this, a civil war is coming. You almost feel <clears throat> sometimes that people, would find that a relief like oh it's finally arrived like the our second civil war like thankfully you know it's coming but but there you know they got so close and they really try to preserve comedy and yet you know there's also aspects that apartheid was so pervasive for and such a pervasive system of control for so long that there are people who don't know that they deserve something different. The, in some ways, the, the segregation is still so extreme and they aren't, there's not a tradition that trickles all the way down and all the way into rural areas and outside Soweto of, of certain types of protest. And you're like, is this piece actually, are, are people quiescent are leaders not leading in the face of injustices and, and things that really have to be changed? Or is it something good? It's a weird kind of a thing. Um, I, do, I don't know. I mean, it's, I do think it's, it's a country that just shouldn't look like or act like or be like what any kind of economist would would predict, and that makes it interesting, but also I think unsettling about some of our assumptions of what will happen if you get these type of conditions. It's very, very, very hard to really understand how to undo an economy that was built from the very beginning to be really exclusive, to be an economy that served ten percent of people with ninety percent as a labor reserve. You just have to rebuild everything um and you know how much time should that take how do you really do it i i find i would be i would have been overwhelmed by those questions i think the anc has overall done a pretty good job i think they're at about 75% of the fan of trajectories of what could what could have happened after 1994 um and i also think that the country has survived and is surviving types of scenarios that like, I'm not even sure that we in America want to survive, that we want to see the other side of, that we really are, are committed to that kind of aftermath work. So I call sometimes a country it's, that's it's low trust, but it's high hope and that we're maybe more low trust, low hope at the moment.
0: That was author Eve Fairbanks. Her new book is titled The Inheritors, An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.